Two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan during World War II. As everyone knows, the army, though, was preparing a third bomb when Japan surrendered. The nuclear core of that third bomb would never be dropped on Japan, but it would cause tragedy back in the United States. This is the story of the Demon Core. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast. Hi. Doesn't sound like it's going to be a happy episode. Um, no. But wait. (laughs) We have... Special returning guest star appearance from Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Carrie. I'm Aaron. I'm Dean. Okay, Dean. Why don't you get this party started? I will. So on August 6th, 1945, the United States dropped the first atomic bomb on Japan. It was called Little Boy. Mm -hmm. It was dropped on Hiroshima, causing horrific havoc. On August 9th, just three days later, Japan was still fighting, so the U.S. dropped a second bomb called Fat Man on Nagasaki. And there was some, at least one guy, that was in both cities. Really? For the bombs. Did not know that. Mm -hmm. How's that not been an episode? Well, Well, I don't know. Well, look into it. That sounds interesting. (laughs) I did not know that. Really? That's terrible. And lived? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Famous was like, oh, that sucked. I better catch a train to go to <laughs> Nagasaki. <laughs> wow. I wonder, well, as we'll talk about, there was going to be a third city. He was probably on his way to that yeah. city. Yeah. yeah. He was like, fuck. Okay. <laughs> that city was never identified, though. The results, though, were horrific in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. At least 200,000 died. Many estimates are even far higher than that between the two bombs, the two cities. The lethal heart of an atomic weapon is called its core, or nuclear core. Okay. At this time, it was powered by plutonium initially. I guess now they're more commonly powered by uranium, nuclear weapons, but back then it was plutonium. Sure. The fissionable material is apparently brought like to the brink of its unstoppable reaction the chain reaction, the famous chain reaction in a nuclear weapon that causes the immense amount of power and radiation when it's ignited, they're often brought right at the peak of that criticalness, that supercritical state. Okay. Even when they're being tested and such, and they, they have to be brought to that state when they're about to be dropped. Uh, right. So I didn't know that. So they're they're really dangerous things. They're not sort of inert until it exploded. They're they're pretty darn dangerous things that, throughout their. Entire existence. Yeah, and haven't we lost some? We don't know. We have. Yeah. We even had an episode about one that fell off the coast of North Carolina, right? Oh, a while ago. Remember that? I no. find that. <laughs> you know what they should do? They put an air tag on it. They should. Now they would. Now. now they would. They absolutely should. They probably do. Let's assume they do. Let's um, hope they do. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't count on that. I, I would actually. The, the, the military actually is very logical, and in this case, we'll see that they they typically learn sure. their lessons from. But Rachel Maddow's done a story about it. Oh well, I did not realize that. <laughs> I stand corrected. So the nuclear core that would have been the third atomic bomb uh, that would have, would have been exploded over a third Japanese city was named Rufus. Really? So there was, yeah, I know. There was Fat Man, Little Boy, and Rufus. Rufus. Yeah, they had to name all the nuclear cores for some reason. Mm -hmm. I I don't know why. 
they were scientists, these crazy nutty scientists, though. So this core was the same basic kind of uh, same core, really, as the fat man that had devastated Nagasaki on August 9. It was a solid metal sphere, about three and a half inches. That's 89 millimeters, by the way, in diameter. And it weighed about 14 pounds, as you know, 6.2 kilograms. Wow. But since plutonium corrodes rapidly when it's exposed to air, they would plate it, the whole the sphere, with a nickel coating to protect it, to make it not corrode. So okay. it's plutonium, some other metals, I think, and, and a nickel coating. And essentially, they would build uh, two sort of half spheres that would go around this inner plutonium core with a nickel plating. And they would be made by some metal that reflected the neutrons. And that was part of the ignition process, part of the process that made them hot and critical. Usually tungsten. Tungsten, yeah. Okay. And when they were sealed, that's, you know, it could go critical. And the military had learned from earlier testing that without this ring, the activity, the, the neutrons and, and the radio, radiation and the energy would jet, quote unquote, out of the, I guess, the join and sort of lose some of their power. And they, they had tried this at Trinity. In, in the U.S., they had been testing things and they found you needed these, this sphere to go over it and that would contain it so it would have this, you know, a okay. more massive explosion. To kill more people. To cause more damage over mm-hmm. a wider targeted yep. area. Okay. Like more energy, more explosions. Yeah. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> <laughs> Little boy and fat man were ready, of course, before Rufus. Remember, this is weird. This was a time where these atomic weapons were like artisanal creations. One device was built at a time. So that's probably why they had names. They'd build the various components at the core and build the other bomb around it, et cetera. And they have each the the maker of it had a special relationship for with it. And, I think yeah. They probably signed their name on uh-huh. it. I don't know. But they were they were really uh, yeah. handmade creations. Because once you make it, there's no going back. It's not like that's a gun true. where you can take apart the parts and it's no longer a gun. Once you make a core, oh. you, it's radioactive. Now it's, you yeah. Can do it. You can melt it down, but it's always going to be radioactive. It's still radioactive. Yeah, yeah. You still have that. Okay. Bad news. Another thing we should remember, though, is that the U.S. was having a hard time scraping together enough plutonium for additional devices. Yeah. This third device, there may not have been another nuclear bomb after this, this third one. So it was a very tense time after the first two, and Japan still had not surrendered after the Nagasaki event on August 9th. So... Again, Little Boy destroyed Hiroshima on August 6th. Fat Man devastated Nagasaki on August 9th. Still, there was no sign of a Japanese surrender. President Truman and the top brass in the American diplomatic corps and military were agonizing over what to do next. No one wanted to do this. No one wanted to commit another atrocity. They really didn't. They thought it was a necessary, you know, the old argument we've all heard before that they had estimated about a million U.S. casualties in a land invasion, an island hopping invasion of the Japanese core archipelago. And, you know, this was to prevent that, essentially. So on August 10th, one day after Nagasaki, Major General Leslie Groves, he was the guy in charge of the Manhattan Project that was building Mm -hmm. these nuclear devices in Los Alamos. He wrote to General George C. Marshall. Marshall was the chief of staff of the U.S. Army, the top of the army. Uh, Above, by the way, Eisenhower, by the way. Must be thinking, Eisenhower was in charge of the the European theater in in, in war, which was, by this time, was no longer a, a war zone. So George C. Marshall was in charge of the army. Grove told Marshall that, hey, We've had some good luck. We're ahead of schedule with this third core, this third weapon. 
And we think it'll be ready to be shipped to the Pacific Theater on August 12th or 13th. So he's writing this on the 10th. He says, so basically in two or three days, we'll be ready to ship it out. Okay. So if everything goes smoothly, if the transport goes, and they, they get it out to one of the islands in the Pacific where the plane would take off from, much closer to Japan, of course, mm-hmm. we, we think it'll be, it'll be there by August 17th or 18th. And just in you know, the first day of good weather, it's ready to go. So we're thinking something like 18th, 19th, or 20th or so of August would have been the third atomic bombing of Japan. Okay. Nothing I've read, by the way, has told me what city. So I don't know if there was a, a targeted city. I know they did not want to do that to Tokyo. That's why they chose Hiroshima and yeah, Nagasaki. Yeah, maybe someone like Sapporo, which is up maybe. north. Maybe, maybe, yeah. They, they, they were trying to target... Like suck cities. Russia. Well, yeah. They tried to target cities that they thought were militarily important. So right. a port or someplace with a lot of munitions, something like that, presumably. Was that true of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Uh, probably. I'm not, I'm not a million percent sure. Okay. Sorry. So Truman actually wanted to hold off. I didn't know this either, but Truman did not know about Nagasaki beforehand. So he gave the okay for Hiroshima. He, I, he presumably knew we had a second one, but there was not like a, um, okay, can we do Nagasaki? The army just did it. Really? So there, there, so there weren't standing orders to tell to have Truman first. After Nagasaki, though, Truman said, "Uh-uh, you get, I I am the only person in the country who can say yes to a third one." Wow, that yeah. is amazing. I, to I, me. I I did not know that. That's crazy. Yeah, that is. It's not to say he would have said no. I don't know if he would have said no, but he was he it's he, he was stunned. Yeah. when that happened, and he was haunted by the death toll. The death by this time. Shortly after Nagasaki, the death toll started to be estimated by yeah. U.S. sources, and it was vastly more than people thought. Yeah. So the days ticked by after August 9th, after Nagasaki, after the George Marshall gets that letter from Groves that says, okay, we can get this thing out there. We can, we can do it 18th or 19th or so. Finally, on August 15th, with the next bomb maybe two, three days away from being exploded, Japan surrenders. The surrender was announced by the actual voice, a recording by Emperor Hirohito, which, by the way, was the first time the vast, vast, vast majority of the Japanese populace had ever heard the voice of their emperor. He had never been on radio or anything like that, ever. Wow. And this radio message went out to all over the country, and they played it repeatedly, saying, we're surrendering. Mm -hmm. And so U.S. forces moved in. The war was effectively over. Rufus... That nuclear core for the third bomb yep. was no longer going to be needed. Apparently, it was just about ready to be. When that happened, when that surrender happened, they had it being prepared to be driven to Kirtland Air Force Field in New Mexico, in Albuquerque, and there to be flown to the Pacific Theater. It was going to happen within yeah. a very short time. So still, okay, so they had this, this very lethal third bomb nuclear core back in Los Alamos now. And the world is still a dangerous place. The Cold War was on the horizon. The U.S. knew it would continue to need its nuclear option. We were the only major power with a well, the only power at all with a nuclear weapon at this time. So Rufus would remain in Los Alamos, and there they figured the physicists, all those big brains at the at the part of the Manhattan Project, would continue to test it and experiment upon it to continue to learn more about nuclear reactions and things like that. There was still a ton left to learn. Sure. And some of those people in Los Alamos would learn the hard way. There's two events we're going to tell you about that took place with the Demon Corps. The first event, both were at Los Alamos, by the way. 
Wait, did, yes. at the time, did they call it the demon No, core? they did not. They called okay. it Rufus. But the thing at the core of it is known as a demon core. No, it's no, Rufus. Rufus. Oh, it wasn't named. Yeah. Okay. That mm-hmm. comes later yeah, after it does Rufus. demonic things. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it's Rufus. It's got a friendly name. because yeah, the other two, like, I'm like, just going by death toll here. <laughs> this Rufus is the, like, the least, underachieving. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Lay Bloomer brother. But he got he gets called the demon core. Fat man, a little boy, caused hundreds of thousands of deaths. Yeah. So, so Rufus, we'll call it Rufus still because it's still known as Rufus. That the, the core literally has that name. The name is Rufus. Mm-hmm. They have it in Los Alamos, New Mexico, being experimented on. So at any second, a good chunk of New Mexico could be blown be, into dust. Uh-huh. And so that's why, by the way, it was located way out in Los Alamos. It was like 100 miles by road north of Albuquerque. No one lived there, very yeah. sparsely populated. They also wanted it to be in a location that was at least 200 miles away from any international border. In this case, it was about 200 miles away from the Mexican border, a little more than that. So as not to cause an international incident? Just, you never knew. No, not <laughs> yeah. that. Not that. Oh, they didn't just want Mexico safety. to be like, hey, hey let's go saw. get us a bomb. Yeah. Let's go get a core. So it was out in the middle of nowhere in Los Alamos. The whole Manhattan Project was cited for that reason. They were originally trying to do it in various universities, University of Chicago and I think MIT and some others had various different workings going on. They centralized it at Los Alamos, I think in 1943, and they cited it there for that pretty obvious reason. Otherwise, they could have blown up Chicago. During its early years, there were some accidents at Los Alamos Lab. I didn't know about this either. From the first few years of Los Alamos, 25, roughly 25 people died on base. Bro, what the fuck? No one died. Not, well, well, we'll see later of, of what you think they would die from. They weren't dying from things like that. There were tractor crashes. There were accidental weapons discharges. There was a drowning. There was okay. one suicide. There was one person who got bucked up a horse and Ooh. died. So it's literally a series of unfortunate. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> like it's like it was on the Native American burial ground, like all of America. Yeah, yeah. it's cursed. It's Might cursed. have been. It's all cursed ground. The 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 core wasn't cursed. Maybe the whole area was cursed. Yeah, Four sure. janitors on one night shared a bottle of muscatel wine. Unknown to them, it had been contaminated by antifreeze. They what? all died. God. All four uh, of them died. That sounds like murder. That sounds super suspicious. I thought the same thing. I'm <laughs> thinking. They just mixed up the whatever the fuck you just said and antifreeze <laughs> wine in the factory. It's a sweet wine. Whoops. But it was the antifreeze made it even sweeter, apparently. How would that happen? Yeah, I thought How the same thing. How would that happen? How was that an accident? Yeah. What did they drop a bottle of antifreeze and it leaked into the wine? That no. was the open bottle. Yeah, I don't know that either. I think Whoops. somebody killed some people there. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so there were no accidents, though, of the most dangerous kind, the kind that you would think about from Los Alamos and you'd worry most about. That is until August 19th, 1945. That was right about the time when the third bomb would have been detonated over a third Japanese city had Japan not surrendered. So it's right after. The war, as the war was ending, four days after Japan surrendered, the nuclear core, the Rufus, was in its its lab room, not a very big room, and it was brought to that near critical state that you needed to do for testing. I mean, that means it's more or less like prime to react, and any extraneous event could actually cause that reactivity to increase and its energy output to increase massively very, very quickly. So they knew this. They knew it was dangerous. They knew it was scary. But there was only a few, a few things that could do this. 
One of them was the core could be compressed for some reason, could be pushed on. This was essentially, by the way, the trigger. It had a hole in it, in the, in the casing around it when it was detonated over right. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and essentially like a, a device compressed that inner core, and that caused the radioact- radioactive reaction, the chain reaction that it caused the explosion. Right. So that was something they worried about, but how was that going to happen? They, they weren't super worried about that. Something like more fissionable material could be added somehow, but that was super unlikely. Someone's going to put more plutonium in there. That didn't make any sense. That was right. not likely. Well, that couldn't happen by accident. No, it couldn't happen by accident. But there was something that could happen by accident. And that was the reflection of the neutrons that was part of this whole nuclear ignition that we talked about a minute ago. Yeah. And that was the role of the metallic core, the sphere around it, was to do exactly that, to start reflection and cause this, this increase in radioactive activity and a chain reaction. So somehow the reflection could be increased. And that would bounce more neutrons. And so they'd, they'd basically bounce off the inner core and bounce back in, and that causes the reaction, right? That causes it to go supercritical. Are you talking about the first accident? The first accident, yeah. Okay, the first accident, they didn't have um, the spheres yet. Yeah, I know. Oh, okay. you're right, you're right. That's a good point. Yeah, no, you're right. As right. I said, I, okay, you're right. They didn't have the spheres yet. Well, but they did. But it was the same concept. It was the same idea, yeah. Just different mechanism. They just yeah. used bricks instead of spheres. So... That has to do with the accident, which I'm assuming we'll, you'll we'll talk explain. about that in a second. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, <laughs> so in, in testing these nuclear cores at Los Alamos, the scientists, again, they had to keep the core kind of hot. And they, they would do it gradually. So they caused this reflection to increase very gradually, and that helped them measure what was happening. And again, the whole idea is we learn more how fast, how close, what, what's needed, what works best, et cetera, yeah. what materials might might work best. They're, they're, trying to, they're learning lots of things. And they, they needed to push right to the cusp of disaster and then pull back. It's like how far was not far enough? How far was almost too far? They couldn't get too far, but they wanted to get almost too far in experimenting with these nuclear cores. How how, how many pants were shitted yeah. in, I'm wondering. Could you imagine working it was, in a place well, like that? Well, that's why you had super cocky, overconfident people tend, <sighs> tend to be these these scientists. It, they were or literally flirting with disaster. They get complacent. They, they, they did. Or F- just maybe a little bit oblivious. Probably yeah. both. Yeah. Or, or just well, like scientists, like, oh, exactly we're finding some information. Doing. Yeah. They're smart enough to know what they're doing. It's they, stupid, but, but they yeah. do it anyway. Yeah. Richard Feynman. Uh, the famous physicist, the person who figured out the O-ring disaster in the Challenger shuttle yeah. by simply dropping an O-ring into a glass of ice water, he called this tickling the dragon's tail, which is a, a very apt description because basically this thing could, could come back and bite you and kill you and you're just kind of like messing with it yeah. at the and bringing it to the edge of it biting you and but hoping it doesn't. That's literally what they're doing. Harry Dagling was a 24-year-old physicist who had been recruited out of graduate studies at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, in 1944 to join the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos. He was really eager. He was, again, very smart. He was young. He felt, I think he probably had, he felt he had a lot to prove and was trying to impress people. So on August, either August 19th or August 21st of Red Bull, he, Harry Daglian, ignored safety protocols. Mm-hmm. And after dinner at night, he went alone into the lab that housed Rufus and nuclear core for some late night experimentation. He was going to well, do some extra home, some extra work. This sounds like a termination <laughs> offense. <laughs> it, I mean, the attitude, they probably would have said, hey, nice what, gumption. What a, what a go-getter. Yeah. He's really taken some initiative. For sure. Okay. So he's alone, except for a security guard who is stationed at a desk at the door 
to the lab. And they had 24-7 rotating security guards there right. essentially to, to look over it. And they didn't know any stealing this core and getting away with it. But that's it. That guard was a private, Private Robert Hammerly. And he was, so he was seated about 10 or 12 feet away from where the core was where Daglin was working on it. It was time to, to chase the dragon's tail, Daglian figures. At the time, as Tickle. Aaron said, they're tickling it. They used, uh, they're tickling, yeah, you're right. <laughs> that's a chase the dragon? That's a heroin thing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say this. Uh, <laughs> the else. I don't you're, think he was on heroin. You're mixing your metaphors. I am. Dean. My dragon based metaphors. So they used tungsten carbide bricks to do this reflection here. They didn't have, they didn't lower a spear, as we'll find out later, that they did a year later. At this point, they just would build a wall of these tungsten carbide bricks, and that, and they were reflective materials, so that would, would ratchet up these neutron reflections okay. and essentially heat up the nuclear core. Each brick you added popped it up a little bit more, made it a little bit hotter, a little bit more dangerous. The core actually was literally warm to the touch. Because it was radioactive. Yeah. So just in its normal state, was warm to the touch. Each brick brought it a little bit closer to that cusp of criticality. So Daglian is taking constant readings doing this. Again, he's trying, he's, he's finding out new information. Finally, got to the point where we said, okay, I should probably pull back. That's enough. We found out enough. We, we've learned a little bit. Job well done. I get to tell my superiors how awesome I am, right? But then when he went to remove a brick, from that top of that little wall yeah. to start pulling back, he slipped. Uh-oh. His hand slipped. It's literally as simple as that. His hand slipped. The, he fumbled the brick, dropped it right onto <gasps> the core. Uh-oh. This, uh, the action was instantaneous. The core took that final step into its supercritical state. There was an instant bright blue flash and a, and a heat wave that went through the room. Right away, mm -hmm. immediately. Daglian knew what was going on. He reacted immediately. He pulled the brick off the core, set it aside, probably even you know got a, a few more bricks away. It's for sure too late. These things happen in milliseconds. Yeah. So he immediately noticed that his hand felt warm and was tingling. The hand that, was, that had the brick, that fumbled the brick, that was uh -huh. right there at the closest spot next to the core. Daglian knew... Exactly what this meant. He knew that in that instant of this blue heat, he had been jolted with a massive dose of radiation jetting out from the core. Yeah. Yeah. If you can see it, it's enough to kill <laughs> yeah. you like twice yeah. over. Yeah. They took him to the hospital right away, but very quickly his hand, the hand that, again, that had been holding the brick, started to blister horrifically. Yeah. And he showed the classic signs of radiation poisoning. He was nauseous. He started getting feeling very weak and achy and, and cramping. He fell into a coma finally after about three weeks of being in constant pain and nausea and more blistering. After 25 days after the event, Harry Daglin died. Okay. What about the guard? Private Hammerly. He did receive a dose of radiation, but fortunately, Daglin's body essentially acted as a shield. And it, it shielded him from the worst of it. Yeah. And also he was held by the further distance. It's right. little distance. I can't remember. It's like the law of seconds or something like that. I can't remember what it was called. But just even small distances away from the source can make big differences in how much radiation you get, apparently. Okay. It's wild. It is. Because of the half-life. But yeah, it's weird how it distance, that little amount of difference can help. But at the same time, 
It's killing that bitch so quick. The, yeah. the, the person who's right there, the person, the, the operator, the experimenter is is right over the top of it. They're, you're hunched over that core yeah. while you're working on it. You have no chance whatsoever. It did make a big enough uh, difference in radiation poisoning. Hemerly did get radiation poisoning, but he did live. Okay. So he got sick, but lived. That was August 1945. A little bit less than a year, uh, year later, in May of 1946, the physicists at Los Alamos were still tickling that dragon's tail. <laughs> they're experimenting still on Rufus. Because remember, we didn't have a whole lot of these things. Yeah. So Rufus is the main thing they're experimenting on, and they're learning all they could still. There was a Canadian physicist named Louis Sloten, and he become like the master of the technique, his own technique, I'll tell you about in a second, of tickling the dragon's tail. He had been involved in building the fat man and little boy, as well as Rufus. And since the end of the war, he had tested the core in this way that I'll, I'll tell you in a second, almost a dozen times. So to him, it was like, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. I can handle this. I invented this technique. We'll post a uh, picture of Sloten. And, and it's a classic picture. If you've, if you've researched this, you've seen this picture. He's got shorts, like uh, short shorts too, by the way. A little too short there, Louis. <laughs> Calm down. Style. And an unbuttoned shirt. He's a skinny little guy. Aviator, sunglasses on. He looks super cocky. Because it's he looks hot there and Relaxed. New I'm New sure Mexico. it is. I'm sure it is, but still. He looks a little over-relaxed. And he was said to be pretty cocky and to the point of being cavalier. Mm-hmm. He was very self-assured when he did his experiments, even though, as we'll see, the experimental technique that he devised was insane. And that's not just in hindsight that people thought so. Enrique Fermi, the world-famous physicist, yeah. he was a, one of the intellectual fathers of the atomic bomb. He was at the University of Chicago in the, at least the 30s, maybe even earlier than that. He was a brilliant Italian physicist. He, had, he uses math to be psychic. He did. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another issue. The episode we'll have to do is too. Because he's smart. The psychic, the psychic <laughs> physicist. He was an intellect. He was also an advisor to the Manhattan Project. When Fermi saw, so Fermi went down there. He traveled down to Los Alamos sometimes, and he was there for one of these experiments using Sloten's technique to tickle the dragon's tail. Mm-hmm. And and Ed Sloten was wearing his blue jeans and cowboy boots with his aviator sunglasses on and. Fermi was, as a room of, of scientists, by the way, there'd be several of them there when, when they did these experiments and yeah. these tests, and Fermi was aghast. He took Sloten aside after he seeing and witnessing that test, and he said, if you keep doing this, you and many of the other uh, physicists at the lab here will be, quote, dead within a year. So it wasn't hindsight of what's what happened. It was, if you were sensible, this was going to happen eventually. Right. On May 21st, 1946, Sloten was joined by seven scientists in the lab that housed Rufus. They were testing the positioning and proximity of neutron reflectors around the core and how, you know, it's kind of the same thing, I guess. How does this push the core toward criticality? This, by the way, was be the final test of Rufus. Rufus was scheduled to be placed within a bomb apparatus and was going to be blown up over Bikini Atoll, okay. the South Pacific island that would be the famous location of an atomic test that would give the rise to the name of a piece of beach apparel, the Bikini. 
So it was just part of Operation Crossroads. Again, this is when we were in the phase, the U.S. was in the phase of actually testing, going to, to places above ground and testing nuclear weapons. Yeah. Sloten himself was scheduled to travel to Bikini for the test, and then he was going to leave Los Alamos forever. He was basically, this is one of his last days he was ever going to be at Los Alamos when this, on May 21st, 1946, when this event happened, because mm -hmm. he was on his way to a faculty position at the University of Chicago. So they were finishing up getting Rufus ready. Rufus is going to be blown up over Bikini Atoll. Sloten was going to be there to watch it, and then he's done forever. He's, he's going to be in, in Chicago in relative safety. The lead tester at the lab this time was Alvin C. Graves, and he was present along with a bunch of the top physicists at Los Alamos, right there in the lab, standing at various places around the core in the middle of the room where hunkered over is uh, Louis Sloten doing his little test. They had learned something from the Daglian's untimely demise, and so that's why they didn't use the brick method anymore. Bricks right. could drop, right? So yes, clearly. They obviously, and caused terrible, terrible consequences. Mm -hmm. So Sloten had formed his own technique. And like Aaron said, he would put the core into like, I guess it would, you'd put the round core into a half sphere emptied out of beryllium, I believe, which was a neutron reflector. Okay. That metal reflected neutrons, right? And then the other half of that sphere, same thing, beryllium sphere, but the, the top half was called the damper. I'm sorry, the tamper. Mm-hmm. And it had a hole in the top of it that you'd put your thumb in. And so that allowed you to hold on to it securely and lower it slowly over the core. So now it would join theoretically right in the middle there and you get it closer and closer and closer. And the closer you get, the more neutrons reflect and it ratchets up the reaction. And with the, your thumb in with there. With your thumb in there. It's not, it, it's, as long as you keep it at a safe level, you're okay. And there's also... They had metal spacers yes. to keep in between the spheres. Called shims. To keep them from touching. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't just up to you. To okay. Yeah. Good. Well, but it was for Sloten. If you had them there. <laughs> if you used them. <laughs> they would do their job. So they, they would have these things called shims that would be placed there so they would prevent the yeah. two spheres from ever touching because if they touched, they'd cause a critical reaction. Right. Lewis Sloten was having none of that. He was way too cool. Too safe. For that. That's too safe. And they have oh, these. Is it obscenely safe? Makes sounds too much sense. Sounds like the <laughs> Ocean Gate submersible guy. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Probably. It's not innovation. <laughs> he, he literally said. What? It was obscenely, obscenely safe. Obscenely safe? Yes. Oh, my God. It sounds musky. And mm -hmm. he, so he has, his, he has his thumb in there. He's lowering the, the um, tamper. They have these things called scintillation counters that were measuring all the activity, you know, the output that the core was making as the beryllium was lowered closer and closer. But, again, you don't want to let the spheres meet. Right. It causes bad, terrible things to happen. So you don't entirely shut it off. Instead of using the shims, though, that were kind of these fail-safes, these guide rails of a sort, Lewis Sloten said, no. This is science. What can go wrong? I'll just use a screwdriver. So he had dispensed with the shims, and he took a long, normal, flathead screwdriver, and he held that in his right hand. So he's got his thumb, his left uh -huh. thumb, on the tamper, lowering that. He's got his right hand with his long uh, screwdriver, and he puts the, the screwdriver on top of the lower yeah. beryllium half sphere, and just to make sure. And then he and he lets the sphere itself kind of more or less rest on the screwdriver, so it's just and it be cocked up a, a fraction of an inch mm -hmm. from closing off. And he just super gradually let it go closer and closer as they take their readings. And I mean, remember, he's in cowboy boots and aviator sunglasses mm -hmm. while he's doing this. So you get the picture. His um, 
Oh, we should cue here the song, You Gotta Keep Him Separated by the Offspring. No? To, uh, <laughs> no, we shouldn't do that, Cameron. Let's no. not do that. So this method, by the way, was unapproved. Yeah. But clearly they knew he was doing it. He had done it multiple times. So it's, it's you know, again, I think there's this attitude like, hey, you got to let these super smart physicist cowboys do what they do. Man, mm-hmm. they're saving the world. Like they were so smart, you know, they wouldn't you know, do something that stupid, but no. Yeah, well. So he 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 has a screwdriver there, and he's it's becoming really intense. It's, he's essentially triggering a state of near criticality. Yeah, he's lowering the tamper, and the room is full. The room is of, full of scientists. Okay. Yeah, there's seven scientists. There's a photographer and also a security guard, mm-hmm. or there might have been five. I can't remember. But so he's got that that flat tip screwdriver. He's got the the tamper down on it, and what happens? It's the same thing that happened to Harry Daglian. There's a slip. Mm-hmm. The simplest thing in the world. His hand literally just slips. Yeah. The screwdriver comes off. The beryllium spheres meet. And again, instantaneously, there's a blue flash, a blue light flash, and a heat wave that blows through the room. And it blows right through Sloten, who, again, it like Daglian, is hunched over uh-huh. this core. And since, again, since the core was right there at the edge of criticality, that's, that split second makes all the difference in the world. And it emits a massive dose of radiation throughout the lab in milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Sloten, he, he knew. He reacted immediately. As soon as that blue flash came and the heat hit his face, he just twisted his wrist real quickly and knocked the sphere off. And even it fell to the floor with a clang. Yeah. And that stopped all the reflection activity, but... The damage had been more than done. Yeah. One of the lab, one of the physicists in the lab was named Raymer Schreiber, and he knew that the lowering part was just really like just laborious and it's going to take some time. So he goes, "Okay, it's going to be a couple more minutes before we get some interesting readings." So he turned away, turned his back uh-huh. to the core to do some work. I guess there's a table back there, so he's doing something else in there, and all of a sudden he hears, I guess, a, like a metallic clang. I imagine. And he whips back around, and he saw the blue flash scorch through the room, and he felt the heat hit his face. He would write later, quote, The blue flash was clearly visible in the room, although it, the room, was well illuminated from the windows and possibly the overhead lights. The total duration of the flash could not have been more than a few tenths of a second. Sloten reacted very quickly in flipping the tamper piece off. The time was about 3 p.m., end quote. Okay. And well, he died how long thereafter? We'll see. <laughs> there was a um, there were two non scientists in the room, as I mentioned. There was a photographer and a military security guard stationed at at that desk by the door. Yeah. The security guard heard like a sudden commotion. I guess I, I imagine there's a clang, and then all of a sudden voices, and going, "Oh shit, what just happened? Oh my god, did you guys feel that heat? Do you guys feel?" So he hears these scientists suddenly, almost kind of yelling and being very excited. So what does that security guard do? Runs over. Books it. Yeah. He burst out the door and he ran up a hill outside <laughs> the lab. This is the smartest he, man in this fucking story. This guy made a business decision. Yeah. He got it. the hell out of there as quickly as he could. That was a very smart thing to do. I don't know what he thought the hill was going to do. I'll get above it. I don't know. <laughs> Fuck everybody else. <laughs> he was gone. He bolted. He did not say, come on, everybody, let's go. He just darted. Yeah. He probably locked it up behind him. I don't know. Like you see in bad movies. <laughs> no, he didn't do that. So the blue flash, by the way, that was caused. It actually, it, it, it makes sense that Raymer did see it because it's actually caused 
not immediately when the spheres close. It's it's essentially so so it, the tamper hits the, the slip of the screwdriver and the tam- and it closes, and this throws a bunch of of radiation and I guess it excites the electrons in the air of the lab of the room. Oh, then when okay. the tamper's flipped away. That's so that exciting month, the, the whatever the, the uh, electrons in the air slow down. It's that process, the second process, the slowing down that caused that blue flash oh. of light. So it is like a, a second of whatever after. Yeah, that's them getting so excited and they have so much energy that they have to release that it's in thermal and uh, energy and photons. That's yeah, and photons, that's right. The blue photons. So the blue photon, photons oh, okay. are what causes the flash. That's that why, you know, it, if that, you could see it, yeah, it's too much energy. It's bad. You just you just made a mistake. So the fleeing guard did have good instincts, as you might imagine. He, the five scientists and a military photographer, had all been exposed to intense hit of radiation. Yeah, you can see from the diagram that I believe one of the scientists drew a diagram of where everybody's standing at the time of the event, right? Uh-huh. And in the diagram, in the picture, this is a drawing, remember, we'll post it. They're all wearing sunglasses. So you can't say they weren't safety conscious. <laughs> they're literally all wearing sunglasses. I, guys, do you really think yeah. the sunglasses are going to be something? reasonable here. <laughs> yeah. Know. Let's be, let's take some sensible precautions, you guys. Let's put on sunglasses. I mean, I would have head-to-toe protective hazmat it's amazing uniform on. they didn't use that that's crazy we'll see what they did afterward they, they did a sensible thing but at, even at the time they certainly should could have had more protective gear on it yeah not. so someone called an ambulance and everything in the room stays in the room and since they're all super smart they start setting their big brains to work on trying to figure out how much radiation they had just received. Yeah. Like, are we all going to die? What did we just get hit by here? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So Sloten, he made a, I think he drew that sketch of where everybody was. Cause again, a little distance can make a big difference. Yeah. And then he walked around with, they had a radiation detector inside the room, inside the lab. And he starts walking around with that radiation detector, trying to do tests on various items in the room that were near where some of the people were. Right. Yeah. So like he, he went over and tested a bristle brush, an empty Coke bottle. There was a hammer. There's also a measuring tape. He's, he's trying to take readings off of these objects. Right. But he quickly realizes that, wait a second, the radiation detector was right here in the lab with us. It's hopelessly contaminated also. Yeah. It's not giving us accurate readings. This is stupid. Right. And also he's probably a little radioactive. He's very, very radioactive. Yeah. So yeah. also, yeah. So, so instead of him doing it, he, he tells one of the other scientists, he says, go get some film badges, which are also used for radiation detection. Uh-huh. And so this person does. And one of his colleagues, including, he says, go put one over by the core. So he has, he directs his colleague to go put one of these film batches right there near the still overheated core yeah. that had just emitted so much radiation. Uh, this was just as useless as the radiation detector Geiger counter that he had, had used. In fact, the report that was issued after this event about this event would cite this as essentially saying that, look, after something momentous, something life-threatening happens to a group of human beings, they basically don't have the capacity to think straight. They said they are, um, quote, in no condition for rational behavior. Because yeah. these, both these things were useless, and, and the second one is certainly dangerous to have yeah. his colleague go back closer to the core. So these very smart table people did some really dumb things even after the event because they were freaked out. Yeah. 
heard something called the death is it called like the death death pit or death spiral in terms of like I've heard it mostly like reference to like flying where like one mistake if you then spiral and freak uh, out that turns into yeah. another mistake and then yeah that's, then that's when you die that's kind of what they were and doing yeah. I mean yeah that makes sense yeah, yeah it does it's like figure it out you can solve it but if you freak out you are going to die they yeah. all should have run up the hill like with the guard yeah. they should have got the hell out of there yeah but I mean yeah we can you know but they wanted to measure where they all were. <laughs> Everybody stay there, and I'll we'll measure how far you yeah. are from the core. It was just, it was is very sciency. It wasn't very smart. Yeah. So as with Daglian, Sloten's position over the core because he was the operator with his hands covering much of the areas that would emit the radiation meant he had taken by far the biggest brunt of the outflow. Right. He had effectively acted as a human shield. Mm-hmm. Again, like Daglian, who probably his human shieldness saved the life of that guard. Uh, this had had cause less radioaction to hit all the other people in that room. Is that what it's called? Radioaction? Yeah, radio. Yes, it is radioaction. <laughs> is I don't see really? why not. What? Huh. You know what? If it's not, let's make it that radioaction. <laughs> hey, man, is that some radioaction you got there? Is that why it's glowing green? People say that. It's a thing. Sounds a little less deadly sure. like that. Sloten had received a 1,000 rad dose of neutron and gamma radiation in, I mean, again, less than a second. That I mean, sounds like a lot. It's, it's a lot. Graves, the lead tester guy, his boss essentially was watching from over his shoulder. Like, I got to see what's going on. I'm the head honcho here. And he got also a very, very heavy dose of radiation or radiaction, as as some people say. Uh I've heard it both ways. He, (laughs) He spent weeks in the hospital. He did recover, though, and he lived for 19 more years when he would die of a heart attack. Okay. Some researchers later on th- think, you know, that two-decade-old dose might have actually contributed to that heart attack, but it's not clear. Okay. No one else died. Sloten's human shield saved everyone else in that room by, oh. being, by, by covering so much of it with his body, especially his hands. He was rushed to the hospital. He started throwing up before the, the ambulance got there. He threw up several more times on that first day in the hospital but he appeared to improve the next day. He felt a little better. He stopped throwing up. His general health, they said, didn't seem that bad. You don't, you don't, you don't seem that bad, Lewis. But your left hand is looking worse every minute. It started swelling up. It started. It developed. We'll show a picture again. It's a little gruesome. Okay. It's horrific blistering. They sunk it in ice to try to to dampen the swelling, but it was extremely painful and blistered and because he had just taken up just an absolutely massive dose of radiation. Sloten's body, though, initially, again, seemed to be a little better, but they did measure how much radiation he had experienced, and it was about 2,100 REM, REM, of neutrons, gamma rays, and X-rays. 500 REM is considered a lethal dose. And he had what? 2,100, oh. more than four times Ali's lethal dose. Yikes. So the army naturally flew his parents in from Winnipeg about four days after the event they got there. And so they were with him for about a day. On the fifth day, his white blood cell count plummeted. I mean, they, they knew it was going to happen from right. minute one, essentially. How old was he? He was 35 years old. Okay. Body temperature and his pulse started to fluctuate wildly on that fifth day. The medical report that was issued would later say, quote, from this day on, the patient failed rapidly. 
He started vomiting almost constantly. He had horrific cramps. He lost weight very rapidly. And he was a skinny dude already. And he, ha- he also had internal radiation burns. Ooh, That's right. Geez. Burns on the inside of his body. The official report used the phrase three-dimensional sunburn. Oh, yeah. That's effectively what it was. And he cooked. Yeah. He got cooked. And it went through kind his of. skin to his fucking yeah. organs. It's wild. It's, uh. it's, it was brutal. So he was in horrific shape. I'll bet. He began to lose his mental faculties on the seventh day. At least he'd be confused for long periods, about day seven or so. And then he finally quickly sank into a coma, and he died nine days after the event. He was 35 years old. The Army flew his body back to Winnipeg for burial in a sealed casket, I've read. I, I presume it was a lead-lined casket yeah. to oh, yeah. avoid yeah. radioactive leakage. Cement fucking yeah. casket. Yeah. So he flew it back to Winnipeg, and he was buried in Winnipeg. Um, his mom and dad flew, flew him back, and he, uh, he always knew the fate right. that awaited him from the first immediately when it happened. He was he had been at the lab when Doglin got his Harry Daglin got his burst of radiation. He had gone to the hospital and comforted him. They were they were friends. And so he knew what the end was gonna right. be. When Sloten he when he suffered his own accident, he just quietly said, Well, that does it. Yeah. So he always knew he was gonna die, just a matter of how long and how horribly. And the, the, I mean, so you look at kind of a postscript, the cavalier attitude of some of these scientists at Los Alamos absolutely for sure caused these fatal accidents, especially yeah. Slotin's. That was just cocky, kind of cowboy, quote unquote, behavior. Testing was still being done pretty rapidly. They were still kind of hurrying to do things, and they didn't really need to. They, it was sort of speed over safety. During World War II, that made sense. Right. It was a sensible risk. They knew what they were doing, but they really needed to, to go fast. Remember, there was, there was a lot of people thought Germany was going to get the atomic bomb. And even after Germany surrendered for those several months in the Pacific Theater, and, and horrific American casualties as Japan fought island to island, and, and Japanese casualties too, for that matter. And so it, it kind of made sense then. It did not make sense to be so sloppy and so hurried after the war was over. Yeah, there was right. an impending Cold War, but you could take your time, and they yeah. did not. They did afterwards, though. So the Army compiled a report, and they came to a very sensible conclusion that we're not going to do this anymore. Human beings... Right there over the cores, these cores are not going to do that. They would use remote controls. Yeah. They'd use TV cameras to see what they're doing. There'd be more shielding. They'd have greater distances between the experimenters and those nuclear cores. Mm -hmm. They did things completely differently. So they do. I mean, they, you know, they at least learn from these horrific mistakes. They didn't really learn from from Daglands other than to to do the reflective shielding differently, but such a, I mean, yeah. Why would you, why would you dispense with the shims? That just is baffling. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it just slowed, I I don't know. It's probably something like it slowed things down or they're too unwieldy. I I can really be so much finer with this screwdriver. Something like that. Yeah. Wow. I imagine. I don't know. The core called Rufus had now killed two scientists and had sickened several others. So it was renamed the Demon Core <laughs> by those scientists in Los Alamos. Da-da, it was It was almost as if uh, the, it was like the Core's fault and yeah. not their fault. It was for sure their fault. Yeah. Some modern researchers, if sometimes you read stories about this that make it try to seem a little bit paranormal, like, yeah. oh, it really was some kind of a Demon Core. And like the scientists were implying that with their name, and they weren't. They are just being... You know, funny in their own way. Like, yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah, he killed two of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they'll say, although they'll cite things like, "Oh, both accidents happened on the twenty-first of the month," 
Yeah. And both were a Tuesday. Yeah. Oh, and both Sloten and Dogley and died in the same hospital. No <laughs> shit. There aren't a lot of hospitals near Los Alamos. But on the day of the week. And the other thing, the day, that's obviously just, yeah, the, just the definition of yeah. coincidence. So that's, that's obvious nonsense. The car was not cursed, and the scientists certainly didn't, didn't mean to think that, but they knew it was dangerous. So now the car had been denied its use over Japan. It had been denied its use over Bikini Atoll. So it was a, one last chance to be detonated and fulfill its natural obligation as a, as a nuclear core. Uh-huh. It was going to be part of another series of nuclear tests underwater. They're like one, one was called Operation Abel, the first one, then Operation Baker, and it was going to be called Operation Charlie, and that was going to be the Demon Corps. Okay. And so the military conducted the first two tests with, with two of those first bombs. The Demon Corps was going to be the third. But the second test had emitted so much radiation that they kind of freaked out way more than they expected. In fact, there were some target ships around there, and they were so radioactive, they couldn't decontaminate them. Yeah. I think I, That's I, not good. No. I think they probably had to scuttle them to the yeah. bottom of the ocean. So I go, okay. No more. We don't want to do that again. They called off the third test. The Demon Corps, oh, no. uh, for a third time, had been denied its glorious death. <laughs> so in the summer of 1946, Los Alamos melted it down, melted down the Demon Corps. The Demon Corps is not around any longer. It yeah. was gone very quickly well, after God. its last murderous event. And But they used the plutonium, still very scarce, in other cores. So they, they sort of put it in the U.S. stockpile, and they'd use it as needed. And so it, it was parsed out over other cores later on, but the yeah. demon core would never kill again. Huh. That is the story of what came to be called, for a very short time, the demon core. Huh. And yeah. I'm assuming the the country at large had no knowledge of any of this going on at the time. You know, they, there must have been knowledge that, yes, I mean, there were press releases about the scientists dying and there was an accident both times. Oh, okay. That was surprisingly... Shocking. S- I'm Fairly shocked. truthful. Yeah. That they died and, and how they died. They died of accidents at Los Alamos huh. and they died of radiation. Maybe because it was so like, oh, it wasn't because of the U.S. Army or because of, they failed to do something. It's like, yeah. you can report on it because... Those fuckers did some dumb shit. Work, workplace incident. <laughs> it was a workplace incident, yes. Huh. But they, to this day, I'm sure, I don't know how they do it now. I, I don't know. It also seemed to me, it struck me that, did you really need to do this, kind of the same kind of test over and over? Right. And over again. Were they really learning a lot of new, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. They were trying to see how close could they get it yeah. to without, you know, but it's like. But the, all it seems like why? all those tests, going back to Daglians, were doing the same thing. The, you didn't know that by now? Daglian, Harry Daglian or Harry Daglian, I think. Daglian. Oh, is it? He his whole thing when he was doing his little experiment, he went literally until the Giga Kinder said like, "It's going to be critical." Yeah. And like, if you sneeze, so he yeah. So he took it as far as he possibly could. Yeah. Any mistake would have caused. Yeah. What it caused. Yeah, and 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 then again, that's the other, of course, extraordinary thing about this. Both lethal accidents were caused by the tiniest little human slip. Yeah. Something that is inevitable to happen. Yeah. You're going to put some bricks right next to core, knowing that if you if that brick t- touches that core, you're going to die. Yeah. And you, you slip, the brick slips, and then same with the screwdriver. Knowing if that screwdriver slips and, the, and those two halves close, everyone's going to die. Presumably, at least you're going to die. Yeah. yeah. And it's you still like, do that. And it's still, that slip's going to happen. It's human nature. It's, play operation. 
Yeah, and exactly. pretend like it, it turns on your fucking life to get that little funny bone. Uh-huh. That's what they're doing. I was terrible at operation. My hand way. would twitch just oh, because. Yeah. Mm. I didn't even touch it. <laughs> um, did they follow, do any sort of long-term tracing of any of the scientists that were in the room they did. at the time? They to, did. I, I read like cancer incidences. And I read like when that. they died and what they died from, and it doesn't appear anybody died from that. Okay. Again, it's not even clear that uh, the first, the um, the person got really sick for 19 days and died of a heart attack 19 years later. Yeah. Died from it either. That's just some people's supposition after right. the fact. But it, 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 I, from what I saw from all the causes of death, I mean, they died of, you know, and some lived to pretty old age, but some died in car accidents and things like that. Some huh. lived of old age and they, they didn't die. So it appears they did not die from this only Doglian and that's kind of surprising. Died. It is surprising. I would have expected that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's theories about the testing at Trinity, uh, uh, where they tested above ground on U.S. soil, caused many many deaths. Yeah. Because they were closer. They didn't. Again, they didn't realize just how far they had to be or how much radiation was being emitted. Yeah. Some people think there was a filming of a movie called The Conqueror with John Wayne, that filmed very close to the Trinity testing area yeah. when they did one of those tests. And of course, and then John Wayne died of cancer. <gasps> Coincidence? Um, he died of lung cancer later. from smoking, you <laughs> dumbasses. So yeah. See, that's crazy because there was a movie that was filmed in a radioactive wasteland and then caused all the crew to get cancer and then die later. So why don't they just talk about that movie? What movie is that? It was either Solaris or Stalker. I think really? In the U.S.? Oh, Soviet Union. Okay, um, yeah. Literally in the film, in the... like. The rivers were like fucking going green. Because really? Wow. And the kicker is when they filmed it, then the factory where they had the film uh, caught on fire. So they lost the film and they had to go film it again. Ah, that sucks. Yeah, that's uh, one wow. of my favorite uh, when I went through a Soviet uh, film phase. <laughs> yeah. My favorite uh, one of her directors. He makes the soundtracks for those movies are really good. Favorite wow. Favorite composer well they probably knew what they're doing we're just using them as, uh-huh. as human test subjects yeah, without the their knowledge like, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you're fine yeah. you're safe there it's go fun. ahead well, in fact we'll fund the film so that's the demon core story huh not quite as demony as i thought no not quite as demon it's more it's a, it's a okay. clever it's a colorful name yeah it is but it was a very dangerous device really it's a story of just human error yeah and how and human hubris yeah. How dangerous that could be. It's like smart people do really dumb things when they get overconfident. Yeah. And this is mm. a this is a great story about that. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Demon Core story. And now go watch Oppenheimer. Now we did this actually. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Aaron found out about this thing and well, we thought, hey, let's do this because Oppenheimer is uh, out right now, and this is sort of a, of a side story to that yeah. event. Mm-hmm. Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, sorry. Oppenheimer? I don't know. And little fact, all Barbie dolls are slightly radioactive, so mm. it also ties into that. Damn. Radioactive Barbie true? and Oppenheimer. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yetis are, but not Barbies. I'm like, hang on. All right. Okay, yeah. well, thanks for listening. See ya. And go see yeah. Barbie, don't see Oppenheimer. Wow. Well, you can see Oppenheimer wow. if you want to. I'm not going to see it. Whatever. All right. Bye. See ya.